It's Friday, July 21st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump's trial, his document trial, will be held on May 20th. That's the start date. The defense wanted a long delay. The prosecution wanted to get to it. The court, Judge Eileen Cannon finding, and I'll quote, the court finds the period of delay acceptable under the Speedy Trial Act. I like the fact that there is a Speedy Trial Act. I think all laws should be named after Warner Brothers character. The Tweedy Trial Act never really got off the ground. One of the reasons for the delay, and experts say it's not that much of a delay, Norm Eisen, who's a former White House lawyer who really, really wants to get the president tweeting, Judge Cannon just set a reasonable May 21st trial date for the Fed. George Conway, who really, really, really wants to get the president, writes May was the perfect choice, actually. Not so soon that it's unachievable, yet early enough that even some additional postponements will still allow the case to be tried before the fall. Good for Judge Cannon, of course. Others, I guess, to the left are just angrier than those two. Want Judge Cannon to be fired or reassigned? No, it's fine. But Cannon, in laying out in pretty short Uh, explanation in laying out her thinking, noted that there are 1.1 million pages. Now, some of these pages to sift through are defined as non-content. And I should let you know, if you're a premium subscriber to The Gist, you will get non-content one week before the regular listening public has access to our non-content. Also, there are nine months of camera footage to sift through. So a woman conceiving today can spend her entire gestation period watching all the footage of Donald Trump documents just sitting there in the bathroom and then coincide the birth of her baby, little Waltine Kraken. So the news about this, without any news for new charges stemming from January 6th, does make the mind wander and it wandered over to space news. NASA says... It's under 100 days away from launching a spacecraft to study an asteroid. But the adjective they used to describe this asteroid was valuable. A valuable asteroid. Interesting? Dangerous? Important? No, valuable. Why? The 173-mile-wide asteroid is known as 16 Psyche. And it's thought to be made up of gold, iron, and nickel somewhere a Spanish conquistador is twirling his mustache. The ore on the asteroid has been estimated to be worth about 10 quintillion dollars. Quite valuable, this asteroid. We must go study it. It is in the asteroid belt, which NASA helpfully provided a cash estimate for as well. 700 quintillion dollars for the asteroid belt. The guy who's making up these estimates, can he be wrong? Can anyone check him? No, no, no. That entire asteroid belt is worth at best 400 quintillion dollars, Jonathan. I mean, what even is a quintillion? Yes, I know it's one with 18 zeros behind it, or in the case of 700 quintillion, seven followed by 20 zeros. But if a 700, well, let's not take the whole belt. If there's one 10 quintillion dollar asteroid were to be mined. Well, it wouldn't be worth 10 quintillion dollars. The value of these materials are due to the fact that they're scarce. So if you flood the market with asteroid, it'll certainly bring it down to, I don't know, two quintillion at most. It's just so petty and small. I mean, it's amazing we could send probes to look at these asteroids. It's pathetic that we have to talk about it. Well, how will this help our phones? And can you put 
a one with a lot of zeros next to it so that we could understand why it's really worth it to look at an asteroid. I mean, if this 10 quintillion dollar asteroid crashed into Earth, immediately the per capita GDP of the entire world would just about double. I mean, that would last for about those sweet few moments before clouds rose, blocked the sun, killed all vegetation, and killed life on Earth. Ten quintillion dollars. It's only the paper value. You know, these uh, asteroids have to vest, of course. You look into space and you're supposed to call yourself insignificant. I call my species insignificant because I have to put a price tag on an asteroid. If this were the 1850s, we would say they found an asteroid and it's said to be worth $10 million because apparently scientists say it's swimming with whales. There are thousands of whales, the most valuable natural resource known to man in outer space. And if we tap the asteroid full of whales, we will become richer than the world has ever known. Oh, humanity. Oh, the humanity. And speaking of the humanity on the show today, it's an Antoine Tig. But first, it is the summer, a summer of heat, a summer of surprises. I don't know exactly why, but isn't it always? But it is definitely a summer of of flops at the movies. We certainly have an Oppen Barbie, Barbieheimer thing going on, they say. But thus far, audiences have taken a fast from the furious and have dialed down their destiny as ticket buyers. Okay, enough with the award-worthy wordplay. Did you know that DreamWorks, DreamWorks, the studio behind Shrek, released a movie, an actual movie, into theaters named Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. They asked people to see it. They didn't ask that hard. People said no. The studio that gave us Shrek budgeted $75 million on this movie. It made about half that. It is just another in the litany of the summer of flops. Sonny Bunch, co-host of the Across the Movie Isle podcast and culture editor of The Bulwark, is up next to talk about all the flopping we have seen in the theater. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? You know, going to the movies has changed. One way it's changed is the verb. I find myself never going to the movies. The movies uh, are always coming to me. But in past years, I have been inclined to go to see a certain kind of movie, the certain kind of movie that justifies itself being in the cinema. This summer, I haven't even had the slightest inkling of wanting to see anything in a theater, though Oppenheimer is maybe a little bit tempting. I think, 
I put myself in the company of many of my fellow Americans in this regard when I look at the box office receipts. It has been, as per the framing of the Across the Movie Isle podcast, it has been a summer of flops. Sonny Bunch, the culture editor at The Bulwark, which produces that podcast, and he also hosts Bulwark Goes to Hollywood, he was uh, the one who put his finger on the summer of flops, and we're going to talk about why. Sonny, welcome back to The Gist. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Can you give us a rundown? Which were the big movies that flopped? Sure. But first, before we do this, I want to I want to actually take us back 10 years. I want to take us back 10 years. Let's uh, do it. To Ju- we start with a flashback. I love it. June 12th, 2013. Here's a story in The Hollywood Reporter. The headline is Steven Spielberg predicts implosion of film industry. And here is the opening paragraph. Steven Spielberg on Wednesday predicted an implosion in the film industry is inevitable, uh, whereby a half dozen or so $250 million movies flop at the box office and alter the industry forever. What comes next, or even before then, will be price variances at movie theaters where, quote, you're going to have to pay $25 for the next Iron Man. You're probably only going to have to pay $7 to see Lincoln, end quote. He also said that Lincoln came this close to being an HBO movie instead of a theatrical release. All right, so that that is ten years ago, and almost yes. almost uh, like as if as if on cue, ten years we get four or five movies that lose nine figures this summer. I think at least if you're just looking at theatrical revenue. So, so let's by the way say that Spielberg knows something about movies. He's absolutely right. There's no way that Lincoln is anything other than a prestige cable um, property and probably a multi-part one. And I guess he's just happy that he kept the train alive and in time to release the fable news. Well, look, we we live in a world that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas created, right? I mean, if you go back to 1975, 1977, those are the years that Jaws and Star Wars come out, which kind of really change not just just what sort of movies are made, but the release patterns of these movies. They get they get put in, you know, a thousand theaters at once, which at the time is a lot. That sort of release strategy requires a couple different things. Uh, and one of them is a massive advertising budget. So one of the reasons that you've seen fewer and more expensive movies in recent years is because it costs a lot of money to advertise a movie. You got to put up billboards. You got to put ads in, uh, ads on TV, um, ads on the internet now. You know, you got to pay for big press tours for your stars to go overseas. You got you to do all sorts of things. That all adds up. The average cost for advertising a movie 10 years ago was $45, $50 million, something like that. If you look at uh, the average cost for advertising a big blockbuster, it can be anywhere from 100 to $200 million. I mean, they're spending a ton of money advertising these things. So this is why you end up seeing a sort of consolidation into fewer releases requiring fewer advertising campaigns um, that uh, kind of put all of a studio's eggs in, uh, you know, one basket, right? So so this this summer, for instance, you have The Flash, which is a movie that costs somewhere in the $250 million range, $250 to $300 million, let's say. Um, they probably spent another $150 million advertising it, let's say. So that's a movie that costs $400 million just out of the gate. Before you say like, well, if they make four hundred million dollars, they break even, right? Well, you gotta you gotta remember theaters take a cut of each ticket sale, right? They they take half, more or less. Uh, in, in some foreign territories, it's a little more. In some foreign ter- territories, it's a little less. You can use half as as a as a fairly reliable measure. Um, so that means that to break even. The, the a movie like The Flash needs to gross at a bare minimum something like seven hundred million dollars, seven hundred fifty, seven hundred million dollars. 
it is not going to get even close to that. It is not going to get even close to that. I think it's still, I don't think it's going to hit 300 million uh, worldwide, which is, uh, which is a, a, an enormous, enormous problem. Um, you know, they make up some of that money on VOD. They make up some on DVD and Blu-ray sales. You know, there's some sort of formula that they use when they send it to HBO Max. It says, well, it made this much money in subscriber. But the, the simple fact of the matter is that that movie is an enormous disaster. It's going to lose the studio $200 million. Uh, and it is not alone. It is not alone this year. Let's look at a movie like Elemental. Meet the residents of Element City. Air usually has their head in the clouds. Oh, my new jacket. Earth can be a little seedy. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing weird going on here. Uh, just a little pruning. This is a Pixar movie, great, great studio, good track record, never really made a bad movie, though some people didn't like Cars. Well, uh, so Pixar is in an interesting place too, right? So Pixar is another uh, is another movie where we can look at changing distribution patterns. Disney, during the pandemic, puts out uh, most of its animated movies exclusively on Disney+. Plus. They, they, they shift from theatrical to Disney+, Plus, which trains audiences to stay home for animated movies. Um, and... When the pandemic ends, they try and do uh, these kind of very short windows where something will be out in theaters for a month and then it'll be on Disney Plus or six weeks and then on Disney Plus, which, again, just trains audiences to like if I'm, you know, if I'm thinking about taking my two kids to the theater to go see Lightyear, am I going to spend $100 on tickets and popcorn and blah, blah, blah? Or am I just going to wait for it to come out on the service that I'm already paying $15 a month for? Uh, but a movie like Elemental is very, very expensive to make. It's very that it, it that is another movie that cost about two hundred million dollars. Um, so you know you think, look, you gotta if if you spend two hundred million dollars on a movie again, you spend a hundred million dollars advertising. It's got to gross about six hundred million worldwide, and that movie's right at three hundred million now. The other thing that that has hurt Elemental is that it has come on the, the heels of a series of not very good Disney movies. Lightyear was bad. Um, Strange World was bad. Um, Elemental is better than both of those, but it's still very mid-tier Pixar. But anyway, like again, that's that's a movie that theatrically speaking is going to lose nine figures easy, uh, easy easy nine figure loss. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm retiring. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Speaking of the guys who invented the summer blockbuster, Spielberg and Lucas. Exactly. So you, you've got this film uh, that's out from Lucasfilm. It costs, the number again I see is anywhere between 270 and $330 million. I mean, like just an, an enormous, enormous amount of money. And then again, you've got another $150 million in advertising. This is a movie that is going to lose nine figures. That's a movie that needed to make uh, an enormous, enormous amount of money. And it didn't because audiences weren't there for it. Now, why weren't the audiences there? That's the big question, right? Are, are audiences just tired of the big CGI spectacle type things? Are they tired of all these franchise reboots and rebrands and sequels and endless replaying the same thing over and over again? Maybe, maybe. I, you know, some of these are still doing okay. Fast X, the latest in the Fast and the Furious series, did okay. It's still probably going to lose a lot of money. <laughs> but How about the Mission Impossible movie? So Mission Impossible is the most interesting of these. Ethan, this mission of yours is going to cost you dearly. You just look at the budget number on Mission Impossible. It's reported a $290 million budget, which again, like at $290 million, you basically have to gross 
a billion dollars to break even. Like that is a that's a that's an enormous amount of money. But it's but it's an interesting number because uh, Paramount actually sued their insurer because there were massive cost overruns from COVID, right? So the, the the way major feature filmmaking works now is when you make a big movie, you take out insurance in case the star gets injured or sick and you have to shut down shooting for a few days, whatever. Like all other big productions, they took out the insurance. COVID happened. It added, Paramount says, $100 million in cost overruns. The insurer said, well, we're only going to pay for $5 million of that. They sued the insurer. The insurer and Paramount settled I don't think anybody actually knows what the number they settled for was. Yeah. Um, but if it's closer to 100 million than 5 million, maybe this movie only costs 220 million dollars. Yeah. And then it then it only needs to make about 800 million to break even, yeah. which is the, bi- which the is, business plan is like half movie, half insurance, not fraud, but you know insurance claims. Yeah. I love it. Well, I mean, yeah. look, it's it, but th- that's an actual look. It's an actual thing, right? It's you yes. know, I, I mean, yes. it's a it's a this. No, this no is one a, torched the place, right? They didn't hire right. uh, you know members of the Bonanno crime family to light it, right? Yeah, they I didn't bust it, it out. <laughs> that's hysterical, but. You know, as you know, so many of the movies that are failing now come on the heels of the very franchises that I would say were never very good or never very satisfying, but they worked. I mean, some of the ones that you mentioned, Indiana Jones were once great movies, but Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls, I would say, was a terrible movie, but I guess it worked. And The Flash comes on the heels of other DC movies, which were of middling to, I'd say, very bad execution. I guess Black Adam maybe made some money. It wasn't as big a disaster as The Flash. And I haven't liked any of the Transformers movies. And beyond me, I just, I wouldn't be able to say, oh, that was the good Transformer movie. So there's a couple things going on and we'll begin to put our finger on it more and more. But one of the things is these movies that uh, are part of franchises that were never any good from a subjective perspective are now being adjudicated to be never any good from a more objective perspective. I don't know if the public is being educated, but do you agree with that? And what's going on? I think there's definitely franchise fatigue uh, with a lot of these things. Look, I I don't put much stock in the audience as an arbiter of quality uh, to begin with. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, lot of, lot of bad movies have made a lot of money over the years and that's that's fine that's just is what it is like i you know the box office is not meant to be the the oscars i think that franchise fatigue is very real and i think audiences are um worn out at least as much by the constant there's there's a sameness to all of these pictures there's this sameness this cgi kind of sheen unreality lightness weightlessness to it that I think is just growing very tiresome. I like it's one thing to say like you got to go to the the theaters for big spectacle, like you got to go for big spectacle. But but when the big spectacle is just boring, sameness over and over and over again, uh, audiences get tired yeah. of it. It ceases to become spectacle when it's just the same thing. Yeah, and this is one reason why if you look at the if you look at the movies that uh, have popped so far this year, the difference is what what makes them jump out. I mean, the biggest hit of the summer is the Super Mario Brothers movie. Not sure if you know who I am, but I'm about to rule the world. Wow, uh, <laughs> yay. But there's one problem. There's a human, has a mustache, just like you. <laughs> you think I know every human being with a mustache wearing an identical outfit with a hat with the letter of his first name on it? <laughs> because I don't. Huge, enormous hit. That's that's an enormous moneymaker, but that is... 
almost sui generis because it's based on a franchise that's been around for 40 years that people love and has like cross-generational appeal um, but has never actually had uh, like a real movie made about it you know so we're not counting the John Leguizamo uh, Bob Hoskins live action Mario that doesn't exist that that's been memory hold nobody nobody knows about that uh, but the but the uh, but the the other big movie the other big success of the year is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Miles want to get out of here when? So wait a minute. There's an elite crew with all the best spider people in it? Who's the new guy? This is unbelievable. This is the lobby. Miguel O'Hara. The whole thing was his idea. What's a guy gotta do to join this spider team? You can never be part of this. Don't even get me started on Doctor Strange and the little nerd back on Earth 1999-99. Come on, go easy on the kid. He had a terrible teacher. Peter. Bye. This movie's made $600, $700 million, something like that. It cost about $100 million to make. Um, but it, one reason it popped is because it looks so different. The animation style is so different. It is vibrant. It's full of life. It's funny. Um, and even though it is dealing with a concept that I think audiences are definitely starting to get very tired of, which is the multiverse. I can't tell you how many people have told me they were done with multiverses. No more multiverses. Um, it worked It worked in that movie because, again, like the multiverse thing wasn't just a plot device. It was actually a stylistic thing. The different levels of the multiverse all look different, right? It, like there was a, there was real eye-catching appeal to it. So you're saying that audiences want something somewhere one at a time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why do you think Avatar and the Top Gun movie, those sequels, I mean the Top Gun sequels decades uh, separated from its predecessor? Why did they work so well? Was that a question of execution? I got to say, okay, Avatar, I'll give you it looked good. I would not call that a great movie. I would call that a long movie. Well, the difference, I mean, so Avatar The Way of Water, uh, I agree, is not a great movie. It's not like a great, or I'll put it this way. It's not a great piece of storytelling. The story is not, was, was fine, but it is, it is an actual legitimate visual experience of the sort that you don't get anymore at the theaters. I mean, it really is the very rare movie where nothing on the screen is real and everything looks real. Lots of movies put nothing on the screen that's real. And they, most of them look terrible. Um, but this is this is a movie that, like, again, you could you, when somebody says, "Well, they spent three hundred million dollars bringing this planet to life," you're like, "Oh yeah, I, I can, I see the money, I see the money on the screen. That 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 right, was money right. well spent." Do you think they that part of the uh, fatigue with some of the franchises is especially Disney? They just go to the well so often, and they leverage these movie franchises onto TV shows, which are of a different level of success, and they can't say no. You know, they're gonna try to squeeze out, uh, to use the well analogy, squeeze out every last drop from us, and eventually the bill was gonna come due. There, there was gonna be a drought. Well, there's definitely, uh, I, th I think there is a sense that the MCU in particular uh, is overextended. Like uh, the idea, you know, this, the big secret, the, the, the not so secret secret of the MCU was that it was actually a big TV show that came out three times a year and every episode was like a season finale, more or less. And that's why folks showed up to it. They, they, they wanted to get, it was telling a discrete storyline there, there were, you know, two or three entries in it every year and everyone was big and huge and something, something amazing could happen in it. And then once you, once you shift that from like two or three, uh, season finales to like 
well, we're going to have the two or three movies, and then we're going to also have two or three entire seasons of television a year that you have to watch and keep up with if you want to be able to follow what's happening in the movies. I think that I think that's where audiences kind of go. What uh, this this is too much. This is there's too much going on here. This is this is not what I signed up for. Look, I mean, the the MCU also came to a natural, logical stopping place, literally like six months before the pandemic happened. Um, so you know, like it it felt like the end of a thing. Avengers Endgame did. I mean, it really felt like the end of a thing. And now they're trying to start a new thing that is kind of tied to the old thing. And the the quality is kind of wildly spiking all over the place. I don't know. I mean, we'll see. So what are the implications of these massive nine-figure losses? Back in the olden days, people would lose their jobs over things like this. You'd see studio heads get forced out and all that sort of stuff. I, everything is in such flux right now with the move to streaming, the focus on stock prices as opposed to, you know, box office returns or quality, the focus on the two strikes we have going on now. I mean, the the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild of America are both on strike. That causes its own cascading series of issues and problems. So what are the, the long-term consequences uh, if, if I'm in charge of a studio are we don't spend $250 million on any more movies. That day, those days are done. Uh, we are we are gonna redouble our efforts on the you know twenty to forty million dollar movie. We're gonna make three or four five million dollar horror movies a year um, that'll you know probably make fifty million dollars at the box office. Uh, and that's that's where our attention is gonna be focused. Um, the problem is, again, I just don't I, I don't know that the studios are really built to shift back to that sort of model. I like the those days are possibly gone. Sonny Bunch is culture editor at The Bulwark, where he hosts the Across the Movie Isle podcast, along with co-hosts Alyssa Rosenberg and Peter Suderman. Sonny, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. H, you're so cool. And with my star, we're gonna rule. Peach, understand. I'm gonna love you till the very end. Peaches, 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 I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. 
And now the spiel specifically, it is an Antwentig, our name for a three-week period, wherein we check all of the correspondence, and I get back to you, tell you if you're right or wrong. It's about 50-50 this week. So one of the things I did during this three-week period is I talked about the innovations, the leisure innovations that have been revolutionary, that make American life better. I'm talking about a couple quotidian things, but they really impressed me. One was fantasy football and one was pickleball. Neither are particularly cool, but I think if you added up all the person hours that people enjoyed them, you'd find it hard to come up with rivals for leisure activity. And the reason that I'm drawn to discussing these things is there is so much gloom, there is so much doom, so much of it is warranted. But what about the good parts? What about the things that, yeah, we take for granted, but really do improve our lives? Sometimes immeasurably, though, I'm trying to measure it. So my criterion was it can be technology, but if technology brings with it a lot of bad along with the good, I'm not going to give it credit as a revolutionary, life-affirming leisure activity. Like if you talk about one or two apps that are really great, I'll probably agree, but since they're in a suite of apps contained within a cell phone, which is itself revolutionary and fascinating, but I don't know that it yields great net positive enjoyment. I probably won't say, yeah, that's going to supplant fantasy football and pickleball as a great, great leisure activity. So on threads, I'm on threads as Mike Pasca. Project Send It, or possibly Projects End It. No, I'm going to say Project Send It says indoor climbing gyms. Those are pretty good. Of course, they have the outdoor kind, so taking something that was outdoors and moving them indoors is not quite as revolutionary as taking something that was pretty big, a tennis court, and shrinking it a little bit and adding a thunky, thunky plastic sound. That's real revolution of pickleball. Alex Miz on the Reddit page has my leisure innovation list. It's long. I gotta say I don't think too many of them get there, but good. I I don't say that Alex's life isn't improved by one. The major upgrade in movie theater seating and being able to reserve seats. That is better. I don't go to movies anymore too much. Two bike lanes. Uh Uh-huh. Three LED lighting. Yeah, it's better than the old kind. Four stadium food options. But aren't all of them better outside of stadiums? It's a little indoor climbing wally. Five, in general, fewer products needing batteries as they become rechargeable. I'll sign on to that. Six, bus and subway trackers, New York City specific, though other municipalities will tell you how long you have to wait for the bus or subway. That is good. That is really good. And seven, the 1.5 times button on podcasts and YouTube videos. No, you're insane. The two times button is the way to go. Seeger, J. Seeger 9000 says, in my opinion, e-readers are one of the greatest innovations of the last 30 years. Now, Jay Seeger says she doesn't or he doesn't mean reading your book on an iPhone or iPad or Fire tablet, which is good because if he did, you'd have to take the good with the bad and all the, you know, insurrections that are inspired via apps. But she's or he specifically means the black and white e-ink devices like Kindles, Kobos, Nooks, I think one of those might be invented, but that's fine. It's a fun game to fool me. Skeptical at first, but since my first e-reader, it changed a major part of my life. 
Uh, Jay Seeger talks about being able to travel around with a veritable library in Jay Seeger's pocket. And they've also brought reading back to my 76-year-old mother because you can change the font sizes and she doesn't need to seek out large print books and they're cheaper than counterparts. I'll give it to you. I don't use e-readers too much. I like book books, but e-readers are good. It's no pickleball but they're really good. So I started off with the good stuff, and now I'll get into some of the disagreements, and these were disagreements I could certainly take, and then I'm going to segue onto the disagreements that I really wonder if I should even engage with. So a few people did talk about my take on policing, the idea that in the year 2000, we had a national, let's call it a conversation, I think that's being generous, sort of a spasm, a revulsion, a general pullback from policing and shoddy weekend rights. I don't really buy the premise that a few less police or less policing resulting in more murders or people who commit these murders watching the news and then see a lot of police quit and are now like, it's my perfect chance to murder Joe. No, you're thinking exactly like a non-murderer would. Like a murderer or a would-be murderer thinks is not by thinking too much, by getting mad, by grabbing a readily available gun and shooting someone. And the reason that would-be murderer thinks like that is probably because someone he knew was shot or attacked and less police, fewer police, absolutely has been proven to yield more crime, more criminality, more vendettas, and more bloodshed. Other readers wrote in to say, well, the causes of policing are so multivariate, it's hard to point to one thing. That's true. It's obviously true. I once talked about the home run increase in baseball like this. There were smaller stadiums. There was a more tightly wound ball. There were steroids. There was bigger, more muscular players because of working out even without steroids. So it's hard to know what caused all those home runs. But I would say steroids played a big role. And my friend Ben Lindbergh would say, well, okay, he's not going to deny that steroids might have played a big role, but the balls really were tight, and that had a lot to do with it. So multivariate, though the causes were, a couple of them really, really drove things. And what's driving the increase in homicide, I do think, has got to be the fact that police, not because they were bad people, though some of them were, police just said, this is now a terrible time for me to do my job. Even if I do it well, I am going to get protested. I might get in trouble. Or they're saying this is not worth it. And they quit. And that definitely caused a spike in homicide. Michael McCurry, for one, voiced this point of view. I know you're not saying that cops who didn't do their jobs were right. This theory shines a lingo on an obvious connection with the country's history of oppressing people of color. If over such a short period of time, police behavior can be attributed to what is being said about them, in other words, the the criticism, it points so clearly to the African-American experience being told for centuries that we aren't as good or worthy as white people. Add to that the century of whites growing up with being told that they're better than others. Is it a wonder that black people in general have a tougher time getting equal footing with whites? Imagine the attitudes of police after 400 years of defund the police movements. But this doesn't rebut my point. This is saying that, yes, police, while heavily criticized, have a reaction. It might not be the right reaction, but it is certainly the human reaction. And I don't say that black people shouldn't have this human reaction of feeling that they've been over-policed. It's not just a feeling. It is true. We had a very, very non-constructive 
conversation, really, as I said, spasms of rage and disquiet. We didn't do it in a constructive way. We didn't really pass any laws or any reforms. We just raged. We put out the message that the police have gone too far. The police reacted by pulling back, and we saw the effect in rising homicide rates. There were a lot of other things going on at the time, like a pandemic that was raging, but every other country in the world experienced a pandemic. None of them experienced the gigantic increase in homicides like the United States did. France, it went up 7%, and Canada, homicide rates went up maybe 8%, and in the United States, it went up 30%, because those other countries at that time weren't having the conversation we were. But that's fine. I enjoy being in touch with my listeners who have different ideas about those sorts of things. But this brings me to a general issue of people posting, especially on the Reddit page, critiques that I judge to be a little personal. So there is a trigger word that I sometimes see that I don't, I'm not quite sure that people use it in the way I read it, but I do read it in a literal way. And this is the word disingenuous. And whenever someone criticizes what I'm saying as being disingenuous, I know that they're saying I'm being deceitful or dishonest. They're accusing me of lying. Now they might be saying, oh, you're being something less than candid. You're hiding the ball. But I can't help but read it as you're not being truthful. When someone calls me untruthful, I immediately, and this is to my discredit, I get a little bit defensive, but then it's depending on the context of where they called me disingenuous or uh, untruthful or deceitful, I react or I don't. So sometimes an email will get a uh, short reply. Sometimes a tweet or a DM will also get a short but somewhat constructive reply if I can be constructive. But then when claims of disingenuousness, dishonesty, or you know, being fooled or tricked show up on the Reddit page, I always have a choice. And then the choice, I'm going to ask you to weigh in on what you think of my choice. So sometimes I read the Reddit page of other broadcasters and I see a lot of their listeners saying, oh, this criticizing the host. I listen to the Adam Carolla show and I go on that Reddit page and they seem really not to like Adam Carolla. Many of the people do or they criticize him quite harshly. And I say to myself, I, I think Adam Carolla has lost the audience. In any event, it's not a good way to brand the Adam Carolla show. And if the gist page, which is public, becomes a large criticism of me or prominent claims that I'm being dishonest or was easily fooled, I say, well... If I could divorce my ego from this, I absolutely should let it go. And I don't want my ego to drive me, but it is branding. It is sad. It's 2023. Everything you do is a brand. People are brands, but the gist is a brand. And if I have a lot of people out there or unrebutted claims that I'm lying or being dishonest, I I often don't know what to do. And I think maybe in the past I've addressed these claims a little too aggressively, let's say. I try not to be very persnickety, but sometimes I can, and sometimes the people making the claims, like a guy named Muckmeyer, who's a good poster on the Reddit board, said, hey, sorry to offend you, I'm gonna withdraw from this. But he did say in a post called Standards for Untrue, he did ask, who is being more untrue? Mike Pesca, in the way he characterized the CBS headline, or the CBS headline, Florida bill allowing radioactive roads made of potentially cancer-causing mining waste signed by DeSantis. So like I said, it's untrue. That's an untrue sentence. The Florida bill did not allow it. The Florida bill allowed for studying. He read the bill, as did I. The way he interpreted the bill is that once this study is done, and it could be done in a pro forma way, then 
the building of roads will be allowed. But uh, not to rejoin the debate, no other news organization agreed with CBS's framing that the bill allows these radioactive roads. Also, neither one of us even got into it on the Reddit page. The EPA is still a government agency that has and asserts and will intervene if they think that there are cancer-causing materials on the road. I just did not like the headline, Standards for Untrue. I did not like the sentence. On this, Mike's characterization is more untrue than the CBS headline. I maybe should have left it alone, but I didn't. And then I further ask myself, am I being motivated by thin-skinnedness, by ego, or am I being motivated by, you know, cultivating the brand. Similar post by RNG Hates Me, did the Robert Court hoodwink Mike? Sorry, and he made some allegations that it did because they're much more conservative than I thought. I argued back. I argued originally, and I argued back. No, the court was did not fool me. I knew that many 6-3 conservative rulings would be coming down the pike. It's just not as catastrophic as the last term, as as some people were saying. And I cited a New York Times uh, front page story, which came out, I think, a week after I was talking about the Roberts Court supposedly walking in 6-3 lockstep. That was not true. But I hated that post. I hated that it said, did the Roberts Court hoodwink Mike? I find it very hard not to say, no, it did not. Please listen to these sections of the spiel, and then you will know that I was acknowledging everything that you're acknowledging. I was not hoodwinked. Why even bother going through issuing all the caveats in the first place if someone posts and says, did the Roberts Court hoodwink Mike? And the answer might be, because you could ignore the Reddit page. And indeed, I could. I wonder what you think. You could either say, Mike, I do think you're being too thin-skinned. Mike, I do think you're being egotistical. Don't say, what the hell is Reddit? (laughs) You could say that, but don't say that. Reddit is something. Uh, Or you could come in and saying, actually, I enjoyed the uh, back and forth. Maybe you even want to say, you were hoodwinked, buddy. All right. So that's where we are with my internal dialogue made external. Thank you, the institution of the Antwintig. And now we get to the greatest listener, the greatest person to interact with me. And this was a late-breaking suggestion. It came after my talk, my two-part talk with David Gran, where we talked about the 17th and 18th century novel and book or nonfiction book and the history in Victorian literature of sprawling, gigantic, curlicue-type subtitles. This, I was told, reminded actually by Skylar Chapman, was the original subtitle of Robinson Crusoe. We call it Robinson Crusoe. It is, in fact... The Life and Strange Surprising, with a Z, Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York Mariner, who lived 8 and 20 years all alone in an uninhabited island on the coast of America near the mouth of the great river Arunaquay, having been cast on shore by shipwreck wherein all the men perished but himself, with an account how he was at last as strangely delivered, D-E-L-I-V-E-R, apostrophe D, by Pirates, Pirates with a Y. Written by who? Who is it always written by in these cases? Written by himself. Well, thank you, and therefore I answer, 
toward the insurance of the ongoing prosperity and edification in matters gistial. The gist does hereby declare if the public homage of a people can ever be worthy the favorable regard of the holy and omniscient being to whom it is addressed by the impulse of the host's heart and the dictates of his conscience, the gift of heaven for the good of man, freed of all, coercive edicts from that unhallowed connection with the powers of this world, those freewill offerings of humble supplication, thanksgiving, and praise, which alone can be acceptable to whom no hypocrisy can deceive and no forced sacrifices appropriate. It is upon these principles, with these views, in conformity with the resolution aforesaid, to be granted the status in designation and fact as blarer of the plush beast, to wit, Skylar Chapman, you are the lobstar of this Antoine Tig. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. Thank you.